0: know there's certain indicators of spring and some of my favorites of course are warmer weather and longer days of or longer hours of sunlight but none the least of which is seeing people come back to church and the lake and and all that and it it's wonderful and, and I think this year, this spring as we're starting to see some some positive I guess that's not the right some improved numbers in COVID And and such, you know, obviously we want to continue to be safe and aware, but as we're seeing some things show a turn, I think this spring is going to feel so much better. And, And I'll say this on Easter because I say every Easter, I love the part of the world where we live in because our Easter falls in spring. And it just seems like things are green and growing and sprouting and they talk about a season of refreshment and renewal. And I love that. I love that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Hawaii or all those places that are like that year round, but there's something about the end of this season, you know, when when there's new life and new growth. And I just think it's completely appropriate that, that we celebrate the resurrection, the new life. Then at the beginning of this year, I cast a vision for this church to become more intentional, to, to take the lessons and instructions of the Bible and put them into action, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And in our various Bible studies and discussions, I've, I've learned that many of us worry about what people think. We want people to like us, to approve of us, to accept us. And I, I certainly count myself as one of those people. Not, not all of us are that way, but, but a lot of us are on some level. And, and I want to be clear that I don't believe that anyone, anyone um, would set aside their faith or their moral convictions for the sake of being liked. But we are at least keenly aware of how others respond to the things we do and we say. And this may give us pause when we are called to do something but worry about the perception of others or how they receive our, our actions or our intentions. Now, the Bible is full of what I think and consider to be reluctant leaders. There are some that are just go-getters and there are some that are, you know, God's called them and they're just not so sure. And, and, and those stories are fun because I think they're, for me, they're the ones that are really relatable. But we know that Moses made all kinds of excuses for why he shouldn't be the one to approach Pharaoh on behalf of God to insist on the release of the Israelites, You may recall that Moses was in the presence of God, right? Remember this, he took off his sandals and and he's standing, he said, this is holy ground. And God said, you know, here's what I want you to do. And I love this, Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord. You know, very humble, but in very submissive, it's like, I think you got it wrong. You know, pardon your servant, Lord, but, and I love the interaction that, that went from there. It says, every reason and excuse that Moses proposed, God had an answer. Pardon your servant, Lord but I'm slow in tongue and speech. And we find God's response, and I'm paraphrasing this greatly. And, and who do you think gave you that tongue? Who do you think wired you to speak the way you do? Right? As if God wasn't 100% aware of Moses' flaws or skills or, or potential to do exactly what he was asking him to do, just like he is with us. I don't know about you, but, but I, I will admit that times there are times that I argue like this with God, maybe not literally in those words, but in my mind, I I wonder if I'm capable of, of doing the things that I think he's asked me to do or is leading me to do, or or if I'm good enough or or equipped enough or or even permitted to do the things that he calls us to do. Now we spend an entire Sunday morning. And including our Bible study and worship in the last year, reminding ourselves that God has completely, perfectly, and uniquely equipped us to fulfill the instructions and purposes that he has for our lives. This means that you have been created with absolutely everything that you need to live a life according to your calling in this world. I don't know about you, but that feels fantastic for me. God is not going to ask me to do a single thing that he's not going to give me the ability and the empowerment and, you know, to do it. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable. He's kind of famous for those two things. But it's going to be possible. And, And, of course, we may not fully understand what that purpose or calling is. Maybe not yet. Or not everyone in our life. But... And and perhaps maybe we're in one of those wilderness seasons where where God is still moving around those pieces outside of our ability to perceive what he's doing. But it is no less true in those moments than it is true in those moments when we absolutely can point to God as the architect of all the wonderful things that are happening through and around us. Moses was, like we are, afraid of how he'd be received by the Pharaoh. Would he be dismissed as a nuisance, right? Just... Locked up for being insane. Can you imagine this? Pharaoh's probably saying, what? God told you through a bush that didn't really consume itself with fire. And he told you to come and tell me to do what? I mean, he, Pharaoh might've thought he was insane and locked him up. He might've tortured, been tortured by his insolence. I mean, the Israelites have, have a bit of a history of, of, of treating people for, you know, for blasphemy. What If Moses turned to them and say, hey, just talk to God up here on the hill. And he said, you're gonna follow me. And, but first I'm gonna go Tell Pharaoh to let you go and then and, and we're going to go. And they might have thought that was ridiculous, right? We may not be at risk of such terrible consequences for our faith and obedience today, but we're certainly, we still worry about looking and feeling foolish or, or we'd be doing a better job, I think, of sharing our faith openly with the world. I've done quite a bit of training and some continuing education and some stuff. And I've been blessed to be able to go to some larger churches and, and hear some dynamic things and see some wonderful programs. But one thing struck, stuck out to me, a couple things actually. One is the really big churches work really hard to act like a small church like us. You know, they, they do. They, they have small groups and they have um, church on the, on the move and, and they, they've got one, they call them sections. Wear your little section because it's an auditorium. It's not a sanctuary. That's your section, and that's your small group, and that's your, you know, you see on Sunday morning and or Wednesday night and all that. And and they work really hard to keep this intimacy that we are blessed with here. But some of the things that also get lost in that, especially like when you, I went, been to Willow Creek in in, in Chicago and Gateway in Dallas, but Willow Creek has 7,000 seats in their sanctuary. So it's, it's big, it's, you know, it's hockey stadium rink big. And you you, you know, like, if you want to meet up with someone, you say, I'm going to meet you at church, where do you want to meet? And there's got to be some, some places that are really obvious to meet someone before church in a place like that. And, and so I was introduced to this idea they called the fool's bench, and that doesn't sound very, very encouraging, so, so hang with me. It was a term that was used by one of the pastors to refer to this place in the lobby that was easy to find and comfortable to sit at while you're waiting for the person you invited to church to show up. It was literally a bench along a wall that you could, you know, I'll meet you at the bench right under the, the clock or whatever it was, right? And he nicked and ate the fool's bench because sometimes people sat and waited and waited and waited for people that had been invited that said they were coming, that, that just didn't show up. And they might do this for weeks at a time, waiting and waiting, and they feel foolish. And he called it the fool's bench, but it was a, it was a noble term because these people were making themselves a fool for God, for doing the right thing. The fool's bench. No one wants to be called a fool. No one wants to feel like a fool. The Bible's full, people, just like you and I, that God calls to risk feeling foolish. Many actually did what they were called to do. Sometimes they were met with the response that they feared, right? They were were rejected and despised. Sometimes they were met with, with honor for their courage. But in every single case, God blessed them for their faithfulness, and work through it for the good of others. So I wanna take some time this morning to look at a few of them. I'm not gonna dive deep into scripture, but I'm going to give you the the location so you can find this. Many of these you're gonna recognize or be familiar with the story, okay? Noah, Noah. We know the story of Noah. He was given specific instructions to build an ark. and, And in a previous message, I'd shared like the scale of this ark. This was not something you hide in the backyard under a tarp hoping that no one saw what you were tinkering with. I mean, this was, this was a project. What do you think the world thought of Noah building this thing and, and corralling these animals? They thought he was an idiot. He lost his mind, right? But we know what God did through his obedience. He saved his creation. He made a loving covenant with, the, with his creation that, that saves us still today. About David, 1 Samuel 17 is where you can find the story of David. It shares a story of David's confrontation with Goliath. And we know this all the way back from Sunday school when we were little. But can you think of anything more foolish than picking a fight with a bully that literally towers over you, that has slain numerous people a lot more suited for combat than you, a young person? Later in the same book, we find David remaining loyal to King Saul despite the abuse and even attempts to kill David that Saul did. Saul was insanely jealous of David and and his notoriety and his faithfulness. But David remained loyal because David knew that God had anointed Saul to be king. And I will be faithful to you and people will think I should run and hide and eventually he had to, but he did that for a very long time. And we know what God did through David and his lineage. Daniel Daniel's story, it's, it's completely recorded in, in the book of Daniel. But he was taken captive at an early age by the Babylonians when they came in and conquered the land. And, and they would find young, healthy young men with, without perf- imperfections, scripture would say. They would look for wise and healthy ones and they would, they would take them. And they would train them to be, um, you know, um, basically part of, of the council to, to uh, the king. And, and Daniel earned trust and rose to the office of prime minister. And despite the political and social pressure and being constantly met with opportunities, I mean he would he had chances to be rewarded for this position he had reached, right? He was a Jew. He, you know, God of Abraham and Moses and, and Isaac, that is his God. And the king would say, Hey, you're doing a great job. Just gorge yourself on this food and in this wine. And he said, No, I'm not gonna defile myself. That's the word he uses. I'm not gonna defile myself because that is not what God tells me to do. And he received all kinds of pressure and, and people probably thought he was foolish. I mean, you've got that great thing there, a great steak and great wine and you're asking for water and, and vegetables? But he remained faithful to that and, and he lived a life of integrity and obedience to God. And because of Daniel's faithfulness, God blessed him with wisdom and the ability to interpret dreams and provide symbolic prophecies about the future that we study that saved the people of the day. You know, one we, we may overlook a little is Mary and Joseph. You know, think about the faith of Mary. We do talk about the faith of Mary. But did, did she seem foolish? Or, or what about Joseph? And we don't read the story of Joseph as often. But remember, Joseph had, had promised to marry this woman, right? And he learned she was pregnant. And, and Matthew 1, 18-25 captures a story. But it, it says in, in verse 19, when he you know, knew that she was pregnant and knew that it wasn't his, it says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, so he knew it, what had to happen, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He was going to do a noble thing here. But it said, after he considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, you know, this is who this child is in, in Mary's womb. And he said, all this took place to fulfill the prophecy. And, and, and he's like, I, at some point, he, he'd have to wonder, am I, am I a fool, am I, am I being lied to? But he knew, he knew the faithfulness required him to, to allow himself to maybe be fooled a little bit out of obedience. Another one that we kind of maybe heard about in Sunday school was the story of the paralyzed man. And, and I won't read all this, but it's found in Luke 5, verse 17 through 39, it's a place when, when Jesus was teaching and all the Pharisees and teachers of law had kind of gathered around him, which, was, which happened often. And, and there was a man who was paralyzed and his friends wanted to take him to have him healed and, and they couldn't get through the crowds. So they climbed on top of this, this hut, this, this house, and they started peeling away the, the tiles and they lowered him in the midst of this crowd right in front of Jesus. Was that a foolish thing to do? It might seem, it might look foolish. Like, what are these idiots doing? And they're lowering them in the crowd. I mean, but people will do things that seem foolish, but they know to be right because God tells them, this is what I would like you to do. Jesus knew that willingness to be obedient to God's commandments means a willingness to risk foolishness. Think also about some of the parables he used to teach us at Lessons. Consider the account of the father in the story of the prodigal son. I'm sure the father was saying, was I a fool for loving and trusting my son with his inheritance? Did he make a fool of me by going and wasting it? Am I a fool for welcoming him back? But isn't this what we're supposed to do? That's the message of that parable. Consider the account of the good Samaritan. I'm sure he wondered, am am I a fool for coming to the aid of someone that is supposed to be the enemy of my people? Am I a fool for giving my own time and money to cover the expenses while the stranger recovers? Am I a fool for committing to whatever additional expense may be needed to fulfill this promise? I mean, we may say that we would never do that, but but think about the people that are in need. And we say, "Eh, they weren't that nice to me, you know, or I don't know them. These are the important stories of the parable. But think about that. Isn't that the kind of compassion and generosity that we're supposed to show others? The Apostle Paul. Paul will tell you that he's not a proud man. He'll write that down. He likes to use the word boast as in I do not. But In fact, he often argues that he he can't or shouldn't boast. And you may study his life and letters and, and agree or disagree. But he also puts himself out there. He's very bold. He's all in as we talked about a few weeks ago. He's all in for the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. And Paul doesn't care about feeling feeling foolish. In fact, he refuses to feel that way. In fact, he almost challenges us to make him feel foolish. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, so 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm just gonna read a part of this starting at verse 1. It says, this then is how you ought to regard us. As servants of Christ, as are those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Here's where I go. This is all Paul here, verse three. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light to that is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. He's saying, I don't don't care if you judge, but you're not. I am a, a carrier of the word. Skipping ahead to verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands, When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We become the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world right up to this moment. This man almost dared the world to consider him a foolish for the faithfulness and loyalty to the gospel that he showed. Paul pursued sharing the gospel with the same tenacity that he once persecuted those who believed in it. But when it comes to putting oneself out there for God to totally risk seeming foolish out of utter and complete obedience to the calling that God has for their lives, there's no greater story than that of Jesus Christ. It's so again, the apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verses five through eight, who captures this. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but he's saying Jesus, the son of God, God in the flesh, didn't use that for his own advantage. He, he lowered himself. He, he made a fool of himself by coming to do this for, for us. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a humiliating death, a painful death death he had the authority to perform miracles and even save the literal lives of others but he allowed himself to hang on that cross in order to complete the work of his father he came to share the teachings of God and he was despised for it he came to show the love of God for all people and he was rejected for it he took his last present and and didn't curse or condemn but asked for forgiveness forgiveness for you and forgiveness for me even though he knew that he would continue to, we would continue to sin and pursue things that are outside of God's will for our lives, he said with his last breath, you know, forgive them. That may seem foolish. That may have been foolish. But now we are blessed because he was a fool for us. We are just a few weeks away from Easter, Resurrection Sunday. As it gets closer, I'll read this passage more. Uh, again, but Luke 24, verse 1 through 11 is a story of of Mary going to the tomb. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But listen to this, verse eleven. But they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to be like nonsense. What we saw this man—foolishness. Would you believe that these women, these women, if they had told you, maybe it was wishful thinking. Maybe you could explain it away. I mean, you saw for yourself that he was tortured hung on the cross to die, wrapped in cloths and placed in a tomb that was both sealed and guarded. Jesus has risen. Do you believe it's possible? Do you believe it happened? Would you have the courage to share that you experienced that? If you saw for yourself and absolutely knew the tomb was empty, would you run in excitement and risk looking foolish as you shared what you had just experienced? Listen to the same account The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know what you are looking for, Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met with them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. The women risked appearing foolish for their faith, but they were obedient. And I'm gonna skip to verse 16 so we can see what happens next. Again, Matthew 28 verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We know this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Imagine again that you saw for yourself and absolutely knew that the tomb was empty and you saw Jesus Christ alive after death. It is now beyond any doubt, obvious who this man is, what he came to do, and that every single word he has spoken from his mouth was absolutely true and were the words of God himself. It just made sense now. Wouldn't your heart be so filled with joy that you couldn't help but run in excitement and risk looking foolish as you shared the good news? Did you ever put yourself in the position of sharing the story of the miracles that you've seen or blessings you've experienced in your life for those around you? Or are you afraid to be pressed about them? Yeah, but couldn't that be explained by this? Word that others might think that you have misunderstood or, or been fooled. We are commanded to be prepared to give an answer for the faith we have and to do it boldly, courageously. And it was promised that there will be trouble, persecution, mockery as a result. The Apostle Paul makes this bold statement, 2 Corinthians 5.13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. I call it the fool's bench. There will be points in your life when you feel foolish, as you repeatedly invite a friend, a neighbor, or even a family member to church or, or to a Bible study or to even have a conversation. And every week you wait on them to show up. Every week you hope, you know, they accept the invitation. And there may be other times when you feel a nudging to walk across a room or to approach someone and, or maybe talk to a perfect stranger because you see and you feel an opportunity to give them a word of comfort, to talk about your faith and the story you have you will not know for certainty how they're going to respond. Are you willing to risk seeming foolish as you trust in God's will for your life? Are you willing to feel foolish as you share the good news of the gospel with someone who may not immediately respond the way that you'd like them to? There is someone who is. Jesus encourages you with reminders of God's unfailing love. He has invited you into a personal relationship with him and to claim the gift of salvation. He welcomes you to the table that he has prepared for you. He is not ashamed or afraid to feel foolish for sacrificing so much for you. He simply waits for you to join him. Let's answer him in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, you loved us so much that you sent your only son not to condemn us, but to save us. And throughout his brief ministry and in our world, as he approached the tax collectors, as he had meals with the Pharisees, as he talked to the adulteress, as he, as he went and, and, and healed lepers and, and did all of the things that people just thought, that's just crazy, that's not what someone does, especially someone of such nobility, the son of God. But the greatest risk of foolishness was to say, I will give my life for these people so that they have a chance at eternity with me later. Lord, let us answer that calling appropriately. Let us respond to the greatest gift that was ever given. Lord, it is for for this reason that the joy and the power of Christmas is what it is. Christmas would just be a birthday if it weren't for who it was that was born that day, all made possible by the sacrifice on the cross that saves us, each one of us. Lord, as we continue in this Lenten season, a period of, of preparation, a of, of season of, of repentance, Lord, there are things in our lives today that, that are symbolized by those nails driven into those hands and feet. Lord, we're culpable to the abuse and the neglect and the despisement of of our own savior. Lord, bring those things to our minds so we can bring them to you and we can accept the gift that was intended for us, the gift of grace and mercy so we can have that mended relationship with you through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.